You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, February 28, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right. It's good to see you guys this morning, this rainy Sunday morning. Have you uh, welcomed Richmond weather back? It's going to be like 70 degrees one day this week, and I think I saw a snowflake on my forecast too. So it's about as confusing as anything I've ever experienced in my life. Um, this morning, we are going to wrap up our journey in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, but before we do that, let me just give you a bit of a heads up on what's coming after this. So next week, we will not be in 1 Samuel. We're going to spend some time Uh, talking about the gift of grace that God has given to his people in the local church in the form of leadership, of of elders. And in particular, we're going to look at what God says in his word about elders as we, in a sense, use that as a charge to install the elders that you so roundly affirmed in December and January. So next week, we're going to do that. We're going to pray together uh, for those new elders. And then following that, in the following week, we're going to begin our next journey. And if you've been with us for any period of time, you may have discovered or heard us say before that our pattern is to work through entire books of the Bible from from start to finish, kind of verse by verse, understanding the thought and the intention of God and the way he inspired his word and put it together. And there are times in the year we may not do that and, and do little bits of something, but the normal pattern is a whole book of the Bible. And we like to go from the New Testament to the Old Testament and then back to the New Testament and go back and forth and, and try to find different genres in the Old and New Testament just to expose ourselves to the fullness of God's Word. And so in a couple of weeks, what we're going to do is I begin to pray and, and, and try to discern where God would have us go in the New Testament in our next journey. It, it seemed overwhelmingly clear to me that the Lord would have us spend some time in, in the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy is a, a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, his protege. And, and if you've never familiarized yourself with 2 Timothy, let me encourage you between now and two weeks from now to just begin reading through it. It's not a long book. It's not a long letter. It's, it's fairly short. To begin, excuse me, begin reading it and familiarize yourself with it. It, it is, I think, one of the clearest New Testament calls to gospel endurance. And that's really what it is. You know, in this letter, Paul is going to call Timothy and the church to not be ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. He's going to call the church to share in the sufferings of Christ. In particular, he's going to call the church and Timothy, it's in their pastors, to not quarrel about irreverent babble and foolish and unnecessary controversies that Paul says have shipwrecked so many and upset the faith of others. Rather, Paul is going to clearly call the church to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's a gospel call to flee, Paul says, youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love. It's a call to the church to watch out for deceivers whose foolishness will become clear in their own time. It's a call to the church to continue day in and day out in what we have learned most clearly from the God-breathed scriptures that alone are able to make us wise for salvation. 
It's a call to the church to continue to cling to and feast on and declare God's inerrant and holy word. It's a call to gospel endurance when in, in a day really like ours where there's a need for the call to such endurance. So I'm excited to get into it with you. Take some time between now and then to begin familiarizing yourself with it. Read it, begin praying through it. And in a couple of weeks, we will, we will jump into it. But this morning, we are going to bring our journey in 1 Samuel to a close. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And as we begin to make our way into God's word this morning, let me just remind you that the books of Samuel are really, as it's known historically, the book of Samuel. First and second Samuel are really originally one volume. The book of Samuel is not something that was written in isolation. It's part of God's larger redemptive story. And as we begin to put it in its place in God's larger story, we need to remember that in a very real way, in a very real level, 1 Samuel was written to, to narrate the history of the transition, massive transition that was happening in the lives of God's people. God had redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, had called them to himself, had committed himself to them as their God, and they were his people. He gave them his word. He promised them a land in which he would give them, and and he gave them the land. And when they went into the land, they went into the land as the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were loosely related to each other, kind of a federation of tribes related to each other under their covenant with God. And, and God gave them through a season, a period of judges who would go before them in battle. And God would use these judges in these cycles and seasons to bring God's people back from their descent into sin and bring them back in repentance and, and renewing their covenant with the Lord. And 1 Samuel, and really the book of Samuel, is narrating a period in the history of God's people when the transition would take place from this loose federation of tribes in the land to a kingdom, a monarchy in particular. And God had promised them such a day would come Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God had told them through Moses that a day is going to come when you go to the land that the Lord is giving you and you'll possess it and you'll dwell in it and you'll say, I want a king over me like the nations around me. And you may indeed set a king over you, Moses said, whom the Lord your God will choose. In Deuteronomy 17, he, he gave some character traits of this king that God would give to his people, that God would choose for his people. He said, this king, when this day comes, he, he must not acquire for himself many horses. He must not acquire for himself many wives. He must not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Rather, when he sits on the throne... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Write in his own hand a copy of God's word, of God's law to his people. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. Why? That he, as the, the king that God has chosen for his people, that he would learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of the law. That his heart may not be lifted up among his brothers that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he, his children, 
and all of his people in Israel. This is what God said would come. A day was going to come. Well, some 400 years later, we come to the time that was narrated in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When 1 Samuel started, they were still in that kind of federation, and Samuel was the last judge. But 1 Samuel 8 came, and God's people demanded a king. But they didn't want the king that God had promised. They wanted a king like the nations around them. And they came to God with this demand. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God spoke to his people about this demand through Samuel the prophet. You might remember, we talked about it in the story a few times. Samuel warned them what it would be like if they went through with this. He said, this king will take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take the best of your fields, he'll take your grain, he'll take your male and female servants, he'll take a tenth of your flocks. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Six times, he said, if you go through with this, the king that you so desperately want and demand, he's going to take, 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 take. But they insisted. And Saul, you may remember in the story, was anointed then the first king of Israel. The transition was beginning from that federation to a kingdom with a king, a monarchy. But Saul was a king of their choosing. And as the story kept going, we we watched Saul unravel. We began to see how Saul really did fit the cravings and the desires of the people's heart, how much Saul really was like a king of the nations. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 15, that began to culminate in a sense for Saul, as Saul had repeatedly rejected or or tried to at least rewrite and twist for his own purposes the word of the Lord. And through the prophet Samuel, go back and read in 1 Samuel 15, God spoke to Saul and told him that for his disobedience and rejection of his word, Saul, God has removed from Saul the kingdom of Israel. He's no longer going to be king. We just transitioned to this thing and Now God's removing him. And then in chapter 16, the Lord, the very beginning, first verse, said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided for myself a king of my own choosing. The very thing God promised he would do when the day would come. I've got a king of my choosing for my people. And it's there that we met David for the first time. And so from the first verse of 1 Samuel chapter 17, all the way through the end of the book, the writer begins to weave the story of this transition together in such a way that you really could say this whole part of the book is really just a tale of two different kings. That's really what it is. He goes back and forth in a series of comparisons and contrasts between King Saul, the king of the people's choosing, and David, the one who was anointed the next king of Israel, but not yet appointed, the king that God would choose for himself and for his people. And it's here in in chapter 30 
that I, I truly believe this tale of these two kings comes to a culmination. And it's here that we get the clearest glimpse of the kind of king that God delights in, the kind of king that God chooses for his people, the kind of king that rules the kingdom under which God's people live. And that's really the perspective that I want you and I to have this morning as we go through this last bit of 1 Samuel. I want us to consider in God's word in chapter 30 this morning what God has to say about the kind of king that he chooses for his people and what it's like for them to live in his kingdom under his rule. And in that sense, what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 30, what what difference does it make for you and I even today? So that's the perspective I want us to have as we go through this chapter and wrap this story up. So hopefully you've got your Bibles open now to 1 Samuel chapter 30. You may remember we read through the first half last week, kind of keeping the narrative all together because it was fast moving. Well, we're going to go back to verse 1, and we won't walk through all of it in detail, but I want to walk through it with the lens of the glimpse that he's giving us now of the king that he's chosen for his people. And the first thing that we learn about this king in in verses 1 through 6, really, is that God's king, the king that he chooses for his people, is a king that is satisfied in God alone. You might remember, I'll just wrap it up, these first six verses, David and his men have been providentially freed from having to go to battle against Israel, and they have to return back to their home in Ziklag, and when they get there, they see their their home, their city, all of it burnt, smoldering, on fire. Their wives and their children, gone. Not killed, not laying there, taken, gone. Herds and flocks, all their stuff, gone. And in their grief and disappointment and anger, fear and all of it, David's men turn and prepare to stone him. And it was there in that sorrow and in that moment and in that crisis and in that darkness that we learned of David strengthening himself in the Lord his God strengthening and reviving his heart and the faithfulness of his God and the promises of his God. And he was strengthened in his God before the Lord gave him any word that he would ever recover anything that was taken. God's king is satisfied in God alone. David wasn't strengthened through the assurance of success, but he was strengthened in God. It reminded me this week of that famous A.W. Tozer quote, God being who he is must always be sought for himself, never as a means to get what we want out of life. Saul was constantly relating to Yahweh, relating to God on the basis of what God could do for him how God could be an instrument to get him out of his own jam. He was never relating to God for God himself, not David. First thing we learn about this king that God chooses for his people is that he finds his heart satisfied in God for who God is. But the story goes on. We we learn something else very quickly. In verses 7 through 9, we learn that this king that God chooses for his people is a king that's obedient to his word. Over and over again, we we saw King Saul rejecting God's word, 
turning from God's word. Well, here David, after strengthening himself in the Lord, his God, being increasingly satisfied in who God continues to be for him, David goes to the priest. That the priest who, who mediates that relationship at that point in Israel's history between God and his people, he goes to the priest to get the clear word from God on what he should do. And God speaks to him through the priest and tells him to go. Pursue the people that did this and you will surely overtake them. And the next thing we learn is that David and his men head out full gallop, tear off. But here's the thing, if you just slow down and read it a bit, we won't spend a ton of time on it. But David was told by God to go, to pursue, that he would be victorious, that he would overtake them. But he was given no details. He didn't know at the time who did it, which direction they went, where they were, how long ago it happened, so he couldn't even fathom in his mind how far away they are at this point. He was simply told by God to go, to pursue, and you will overtake them. Like Abraham, told to leave his home and to go in faithful obedience to God's word and God's promise, not knowing where he was going to go. David knew the outcome, but he knew the one who had spoken to him. And so he had to trust him for the ends and the path there. God's king is one who, in satisfaction in God alone, is obedient to God's word. And as the story continues, we find that this king that God chooses for his people is a king who is confident in God's promises. Very quickly, in verse 10, we come to a dilemma. David and his 600 men have torn off with no direct detail as to where to go, but they tear off into the wilderness and they, they come to the brook of Besor. Remember this? They get to the brook. And so they've got to strategically navigate across the brook. But when they get there, 200 of his men are like, I'm too tired. And, and Ray and I talked about this this week. This is one of the fun things about reading the Bible like a human. I, I'm not saying, and I mean this in all honesty, I'm not saying I know what I would do in their scenario. Trust me. But it's hard to imagine showing up and your wife and kids being taken and your house being burnt. And the Lord telling you to go, and you'll overtake who did it. But coming to a point on the journey and being like, you know, I'm just too tired. I mean, read it like a human. You know, I'm just too tired. Too exhausted. Maybe these are the guys who, who didn't have the best marriages, maybe. It's like, you know, I, I don't know. But it's hard to imagine. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. But it's really hard to imagine it when you just read it, Right? But as you go back and read verses 9 and, and 10, the writer very clearly separates David from his men. Verse 9 says, David set out and his men followed behind him. David promised, David pursued, verse 10, and the 400 went with him. The writer is trying to say very clearly, regardless of who was with him, regardless of the numbers, regardless of what it meant, David was going to go. David was confident in the promises of God. 
Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The king of God's choosing, one who's satisfied in God alone and obedient to his word, he's he's one who's confident in the promises of God. And as we see in verses 11 through 15, you might remember from last week, this king that God chooses, he's, he's one who will be a blessing to the outsider and the oppressed. Now David's 400 men, they, they take off from the brook, right? And David could have wondered to himself, maybe I misunderstood, maybe I heard it wrong, maybe I shouldn't go, but no, he was confident in God's promises, so he and his 400, they, they take off, and while they're in full gallop, just headed, looking for whoever did this, out in the vastness of the wilderness, you remember, in God's providence, they come across a man who was very near to death. We learned that three days prior, he who was an Egyptian man was a slave to an Amalekite and he was part of the raid that burned down David's city and part of the people that took David's families and the families of all his men captive and and took away all their stuff. But he got sick. And he was seen by the Amalekites at that point as nothing but dead weight. He had nothing to offer them anymore. So they left him there in the desert to die. But here's David, again, read it like a human, full gallop, trying to get to his family, get to his kids, trying to get to the people who did this. They come across this man, and they stop. And they bring him in. And they give him food. And they give him water. They give him dessert. And they bring him in. And help to revive him. They didn't know at that point that he offered any benefit to them. It wasn't until he was revived that David was able to talk to him and learn that who this man was and what he had been a part of. We know the king that God chooses for his people is a king that becomes a blessing to the outsider and the oppressed. But as the story goes on, we also see that this king that God will choose for his people, he's an instrument of God's righteous justice. And after being led to the Amalekites by this Egyptian, the story goes that David and his 400 men struck down the Amalekite armies for 36 hours. And then read the detail like a human. It's a great story. Read it like a human. 36 hours, these 400 go against the armies of the Amalekites. And after 36 hours, 400 Amalekites, it says, jump on camels and run away. How fierce were David's men? And how fierce was the justice of God that when it gets down to 400 verse 400, they jump on camels and run away? These were, as we learned last week, the enemies of the Lord. We learned, as we've learned throughout the story, these were the ones that God had said a day is going to come and my judgment is going to be handed down on you. David, the king of God's choosing, is the one who will be the 
instrument of justice on God's enemies. But as the story kept going, verses 18 through 20, we also see that the king of God's choosing is an agent of God's rescue. David recovered everything that the Amalekites, the enemies of God, had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought it all back. Now read it like a human, right? 36 hours, they're just laying waste to these armies, constantly fighting, right? The last 400 jump on camels and run. Now, they've been spread out across this valley, celebrating like their gods were so great. And now there you are, you and your 400 men, and you just start searching everything, looking for eyes and faces. And you see your wife and your kids come out. Just imagine that moment. These 400 men who had no more tears to cry a little bit earlier in the story. Now there's their wife, there's their sons, there's their daughters. Surrounded by all the things that had been taken from them as well, plus what the Amalekites had taken from others. Man, what a reunion. What joy. The enemies of God had taken his people captive, but the king of God's own choosing has rescued them and brought them back. And brought them all back. He's not missing anybody. But then as the chapter closes, and this is where we left off last week, we get more glimpses of the kind of king that God chooses for his people and what it's like to live under his rule in his kingdom. Verse 21, it says, David, he came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him at the brook of Besor, and, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Now imagine again, this is reunion part two. You're one of the 200 that stayed back, right? And now here comes David and the 400 who went and the thousands that are with them. Remember, David's people numbered in the thousands when you added the wives and the kids. And he's bringing them all back with the flocks, with the herds, and with the spoil. This isn't just David and a couple guys coming over the crest of a hill. This is a massive movement of people. And you're at the brook and you see them coming back. And the closer they get and the closer you get, all of a sudden you see that they've got their wife and they've got their wife and they've got their kids. And you just tear into that crowd looking for the eyes, looking for your wife, looking for your kids. And you see them. This is reunion number two. But it didn't last long. Verse 22, all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because these guys didn't go with us, we're not going to give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife, his kids, and depart. Now, this worthless fellow thing, this isn't the first time that we've come across. This is the third time, actually. The first time we came across this worthless fellow statement was back in the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. We were introduced to Eli's sons, the sons of the high priest, who were worthless men. They were the the priests who were exploiting their power and abusing God's people. And the second time we came across this worthless fellow language was just a few weeks ago when we met Nabal of, of Carmel, who was ruthless and scrupulous in his dealings with people. And the writer said he was a worthless fellow. So amongst David's men are some of these worthless fellows, self-interested, 
greedy. Is that what you imagine amongst David's men? Well, this is what was happening. In verse 23, David said, you, you shall not do this, my brothers. Right? He, here is a king that God would choose for his people who's able to see the unity that they have as greater than the self-interest that each of them is pursuing. And even in this moment, he's not ashamed to call the most troublesome amongst him his brothers. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. See, the king that God chooses for his people is a king of tremendous grace. You see, here we understand that David now sees everything. From being rescued, from having to go to battle with the Israelites, to surviving the battle with the Amalekites, to recovering his entire family and all that was taken, plus the spoil the Amalekites had taken from everybody else, he sees all of it as having come from the gracious hand of the Lord. These worthless fellows amongst David all of a sudden felt like everything that they had and everything that they had done was all because of them. If you go back, the writer does such a great job. If you go back, the, the writer says in verses 17 through 20 that it was David who struck down the Amalekites, David who recovered all, David who brought it all back, David who captured the herds. This was David's spoil. But in the moment, these worthless men all of a sudden said, you can't have any of the spoil that we conquered and recovered. David knew that it was all of grace. That grace had absolutely nothing to do with fairness. None of it was anything they were entitled to. It was all a gift from God. And therefore, there wasn't a one of them that had any greater claim to any of it than anyone else. Therefore, the only right thing to do is to reflect that kind of grace to everyone else. See, the, the king that God chooses for his people, this king of grace, is a king who in every way reflects this kind of grace to those that he serves as king. This is what happens in the rest of the story. David looks at these guys and he says, who would listen to you in this matter? Like, literally, that means who would agree with you? Like, really, who would agree with you in this? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the bags. They all share alike. Who would agree with you if you understood that everything from not having to fight with our brothers to surviving the battle with the Amalekites to actually finding the Amalekites and recovering everything. If you understand that everything is from the gracious hand of God, your selfishness and your greed make no sense. They make no sense. 
I mean, this is what Paul is trying to teach the church in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, what do you have that you did not receive? I mean, if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You realize that these men, they want to hold back the spoil from the grace of God from. They weren't men who stayed back at the brook and got fat and rested. They had a job. David and his men unloaded some of their luggage from the horses so they could run faster and longer. And these men had to stay there by the brook in the open and guard it all. Was it as dangerous? No. Does that matter? Not in the context of grace. See, these worthless men functioned off a philosophy of works. Hearts and minds had become drunk on their own sense of contribution. And in a sense, if you're really honest with yourself, you can relate to their thoughts. It it sounds logical if you never lift your eyes to the hills to see where your help comes from. See, lacking eyes to see that all is of God's grace, those guys were walking around boasting in all that they thought they had done and recovered. My friends, we're not very different when we lack a perspective like David's. When grace simply becomes a theological construct and word that we can understand salvation through, but doesn't become an actual day in and day out, worldview, daily life, decision-making framework, then we can sound an awful lot like these men that are with David. Grace is everyday worldview stuff. And David, the king of God's choosing, is controlled by the reality of God's grace. It shapes his decision-making. It shapes his actions. Right? The same, the same has got to hold true for you and I. It's one thing to speak about grace. It's one thing to understand it in the flow of salvation history. It's an entirely different thing to live daily out of the reality of seeing and enjoying God's grace. See, as the grace of God in all things becomes increasingly the framework by which we can understand our lives and the world we live in, you realize it is one of the most powerful antidotes to selfishness and idolatry. When it's not anything I did or I deserved or I earned in which I have, what do I have to boast in? How foolish does my self-interest really seem in light of God's grace? I mean, how silly is the envy and the discontentment that I nurture and feed in my heart when everything, everything is from the gracious hand of God. What an antidote to self-interest and self-righteousness and discontentment and envy. It's enjoying the grace of God day in and day out. This is the kind of king that God chooses to give to his people. It's the kind of king we're beginning to see that David is going to be like. Verse 25, it says he made it a statute and a rule for Israel that day forward. He's not even king on the throne yet, but he's already legislating. To the writer, he's such a good writer if you love literature, such a good writer. He's letting you know even like right here in the flow of the story A new day is dawning. A new kingdom is being established. The king of God's choosing is 
beginning to take the throne. And just like Moses said, he's, he's going to be one of your brothers, but he's not going to take and take and take. The king of God's choosing is one who freely and generously gives. That's how the chapter ends. David and his men, when they came to Ziklag, verse 26, they sent part of the spoil to their friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth and the Negev and a bunch of other places that I'm not going to try to pronounce. They were all the places, it says, where David and his men had roamed. So now David and his men get everything back, plus more. Everything plus more. Now, what would you and I do? We'd show back up to Ziklag and take that plus more and build bigger houses, wouldn't we? Build bigger barns, wouldn't we? It's a massive rebuilding project that needs to be undertaken. But what, was David, what does David do? He takes the spoils of God's enemies, that which God had given by his grace, and he spreads the blessing of that victory that God had won on their behalf throughout all of Israel. He gives. He gives to all the places that had cared for him all those years that he was on the run. Because the king of God's choosing is the king that never stops giving the best of gifts to his people. The Lord's anointed defeated God's enemies. And he brought back the blessing to all of God's people. You see, by the time this chapter ends, Saul has died on the mountain. But the writer has shown us a glimpse, a portrait of the kind of king that will take his place. One that God has chosen. One who is satisfied and strengthened in God and obedient to his word and confident in his promises a blessing to outsiders and oppressed, an instrument of justice, an agent of God's rescue, a champion of the unity of God's people and who rules in the bright light of God's grace. You're left at this point in the book of Samuel as a reader going, who wouldn't want to live in a kingdom like that? Under a king like that. And as you step back and remember that this is narrating a particular part of the story of God's people in the whole of God's redemptive story, you and I can realize now where we are in this and see that you and I, we get to live in a better kingdom under a better king than even David. David was just a forerunner and a taste of what it was going to be like to live under the king that God would choose for his people for all of eternity and the kingdom that God would establish. Friends, as you go back this week and read 1 Samuel chapter 30, the name of Jesus should echo in your ears as you read through the whole thing. Jesus, God's king, the one who has only ever been truly and fully satisfied in God alone, strengthened in God alone for his mission. Remember that night in Gethsemane before he goes to the cross? On his knees alone with the Father, if there's ever a darker spot, it was, I don't know what it was. If there's any other way to accomplish this, if there's any other way that we can do it, please let it pass. 
but not my will be done. Your will be done. Satisfied in God alone and strengthened in the Father, Jesus is the King who in every way remained perfectly obedient to God's Word, confident in God's promises, would remind His disciples over and over again that I do nothing on my own authority. I speak as the Father has taught me. That He who sent me, He's with me. He's not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus is God's King who delivers the fullness of God's righteous judgment on His enemies. Not with a sword, not with a spear, not with a horse, not with a chariot. He did it through His perfectly obedient life his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. King Jesus delivered judgment to Satan's sin and death. And in his life and through his death and resurrection, he plundered the enemy, quite literally disarming the enemy and defeating them and leading out of the kingdom of darkness into his glorious kingdom, all who would repent of their sins and believe upon him as king and savior. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2, All of you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. When the anointed one, When the king of God's choosing, when Jesus died in our place for our sins on the cross and was raised three days later victoriously over death, he defeated and disarmed Satan. You've got to understand this. Satan only had one eternally destructive weapon against you. Do you know what that is? It's the accusation before God that because of your sin, You deserve to be with him in hell forever. Jesus, disarmed, literally broke the tip off that spear. It's like poking you with a a straw. He disarmed Satan. He defeated him. When he died in your place for your sin and took upon his body, the judgment and the condemnation that you deserve. And when God received him as that perfect sacrifice and raised him from the dead, for those who believe upon him as king, who bow their knees to him, who receive this kingdom, there's nothing left. There's no weapon that he has that can prosper now. Nothing. He disarmed him. Do you you hear it? This is the kind of king that God chooses You can never be separated from the love of this king in his kingdom by anything. That's what Paul promises in Romans 8. God has delivered you, Colossians 1, from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son where he is king. And what kind of king is he? What's it like to live in his kingdom? Well, he's the king of God's choosing who revives the helpless and welcomes the outsider and the oppressed, who the writer of Hebrews tells us is never ashamed to call us his brothers, 
a king of grace who gives the best gifts to all who embrace the kingdom that God has established in him. The greatest gift being that of our salvation. That's why Paul never stops telling the church, you were saved by grace. It's not your own doing. It's the work and the gift of the king of grace. He gives the best gifts. Adoption into his family. His very presence of his spirit alive and at work in you. The down payment of all that is to come. He gives the best gifts. Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. No more work needed in this thing. I've I've got it for you. It's the law of grace the king rules by. I came, I lived, I died, I rule, I reign, Jesus would say, that you might have life, life to the fullest. This is what the king gives to those in his kingdom. Friends, have you ever bowed your knee to this king? Have you ever surrendered your heart to him? You turned from your own self-interest efforts and your own self-righteous ways and believed upon his work on your behalf. Friends, entrance into his kingdom, it's grace. It's a gift of grace. It's just receiving him, surrendering to him. And for those who do, you'll never be separated from him. For those of you that have, have tasted of the kindness and the grace of this king, who who live with an awareness of his grace at work in your life, do you realize how that awareness ought to, to move us into being mindful of how we're now reflecting that grace to others? Friends, we've been redeemed by the king of grace. It's our responsibility and privilege to enjoy him on a daily basis in order that we would reflect his grace to a watching world that knows nothing other than entitlement and work. This is eternal life, he said, knowing and being satisfied in the only true God and in me, the one he sent. I came that you might find me, the Father, fully satisfying. He is the chief end of everything. It is most glorified by us when we're most satisfied in him. Friends, if you live in the awareness of this grace, let me just ask you, are are you increasingly satisfied in God? How often do you wake up believing that you really just need something a little more? How's your fight with envy and contentment? Are you struggling against entitlement? Friends, the way we put those things to death on a day in and day out basis is by pursuing a heart that's satisfied and enjoying the grace of God. And the king of all grace. See, it's from this place that he sends us out into this world with the good news of his victory and his kingdom and what it is to live with him as king. And he sends us out from this place with the fullness of his authority. All authority, he said, has been given to me. Therefore, go 
And as we know, the story of God's redemption, the bigger story that God is telling, it's continuing on, it's unfolding day by day. And like David, he sends us out to go, but we don't get all the day by day details. But like David, we go knowing in whom we trust and in whom we're satisfied by and who it is that's sending us out. We've been given the promise of victory. Because we go out knowing a day is coming when the great shepherd king is going to return. And at that return, he will deliver judgment finally and forever on all of the enemies of God and deliver every one of his people safely to the eternal home that he's promised. And he will bring all of his people home. There isn't a one of his people that will make it. There will be a final victory over all of the evils that still assault. We get to believe it. There's a lot we don't know on a day-in and day-out basis, but we know that the king who's sending us is good. And he said, go. And that the battle is his. And he's victorious. That's why we'll end this way. Dale Davis, he said, knowing that God's enemies will perish should bring a holy defiance in God's people against all the threats of the enemy today. God will rule, he said. This I know. For David's victory over the Amalekites tells me so. If not, why get out of bed tomorrow? He is victorious. He is the king that God chooses for his people. Friends, let's pray this morning for his ongoing help, to see him for who he is, to enjoy him in the fullness of his grace, that we might be the people that he's called us to be. Lord, we thank you for the glimpse that you've given us in your word, even through the life of David, of the fullness of the promise that you are fulfilling as you've given us your son as our king, established your kingdom here on earth. The fullness of the kingdom and the life with you that one day we will realize for all of eternity. God, help us this morning to see the grace that you have shown us in your son. Help our hearts this morning to surrender. Or wherever we would try to exalt our own right, wherever we exalt our own rule, wherever we try to exalt our own righteousness, Lord, wherever we're not seeing the fullness of your grace towards us in Jesus, our King. Lord, bring our hearts to a place of repentance and surrender. Lord, let us be a people who wake up ready to pursue a joy and a delight and a satisfaction in you. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that work in our hearts by your spirit for Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.